And thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Jelton of NPR, sitting in for Diane Rehm. She's off today. This week, one of the biggest upsets in American political history, Donald Trump defeats Hillary Clinton. President-elect Trump meets with President Obama and with Republican leaders on Capitol Hill. Democrats, meanwhile, struggle to understand the populist wave that rolled over them. Joining me for the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup are three of the country's top political reporters, Laura Meckler of the Wall Street Journal, Josh, Josh Kraushar of the National Journal, and Karen Tumulty from the Washington Post. Hi. Hi. Good to be Morning. here. Uh, and I'm guessing our phone lines are going to light right up today. <laughs> if you want to join our conversation, our number is 1-800-433-8850. Email us, drshow at wamu.org. You can always join us on Twitter or Facebook or find our website. And if you want to watch the show, remember there's a live video stream of us here in the studio on our website, drshow.org. Wow. <laughs> Karen, Paul Ryan, the Republican Speaker of the House, described Donald Trump's victory as the most incredible political feat he had seen in his lifetime. I'd say a lot of people agree with that. I, I think that is absolutely true. Um, it surprised everybody. I think a lot of people within Trump's own campaign were surprised if you judge them by some of the things they were saying during the day on Election Day. Um, so and- how did it happen? Well, I think the story of this election may be as much about who didn't show up as who did. Um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, neither one of them came within half a million votes of as many votes as Mitt Romney when he lost to Barack Obama by five million votes. So that really does tell you um, a lot about this election, Uh, the so-called Hillary coalition that her campaign was absolutely banking on uh, minority voters, uh, young voters, e- even the Latino surge didn't didn't really happen. And you look at you think you know if 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 having Donald Trump at the head of the other side of the ticket is not enough to bring Latinos out, you know what would? So, um, you know, ultimately it was just that Trump supporters were – and again, every, I can know that all the calls are coming in and pointing out that Hillary Clinton narrowly won the popular vote. But the fact is what won this election was that Trump's supporters were a lot more passionate and they showed up and a lot of the supporters that Hillary Clinton was counting on as she was looking at the electoral map – did not show up. Josh, three states come to mind, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah, the story of this election is Midwestern white working class voters who supported President Obama in, in, in large numbers, or at least gave him a sizable share of the vote, both in 2008 and 2012, overwhelmingly swung to President-elect Trump and their towns like Youngstown, Scranton, Joe Biden's hometown, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. These were working class Democratic Union strongholds that, you know, there was a lot of speculation during Obama's second campaign that they could tilt to Mitt Romney. They didn't. They, They were very loyal Democratic voters that just really were disaffected with the economy, 
under under the current administration. And I think the culture wars, the the, the you know we, we don't this hasn't gotten as much attention, but the police shootings, the the the, the, the racial divide in the country. I think a lot of a lot of these voters really felt left out, really felt uh, disaffected as a result of what's been going on. Also, national security and terrorism issues were a big deal in a lot of these communities as well. So you saw this massive swing in Rust Belt Midwestern states among voters that supported Obama and now swung to Donald Trump. Laura, pick up uh, on uh, what Karen started to say, and that is sort of the unexpected parts of this electorate in terms of who voted, who didn't vote, who they voted for. What caught your attention the most? Well, I think that that Hillary Clinton had two problems. One is what Josh was just talking about, which was being swamped in the upper Midwest. The the flip side is she also didn't win the emerging what's supposed to be the new emerging Democratic states, places like North Carolina. She didn't win Florida. She didn't win the places that have more diverse populations. You know, at the last minute, she went to Arizona. They thought they might be able to win there. Obviously, she did not. So I think that the that in terms it is very important to think about who didn't show up. You know, it isn't it wasn't so much the margins with minority voters, but the turnout. And um, you know. It, there's been sort of been an article of faith for the last eight years that, you know, the the cards were all in the Democrats' court when it came to running the presidential election. That they that they apologize the mixed metaphor, but that 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 um, demographics were on the Democrat side. That the minorities minorities are rising as a share of the overall electorate. That young people are more liberal, and they are obviously rising as a share of the electorate as they get older and more young people come in into the system. And that was just turned on its head in this election mm-hmm. because they did not turn out. Now, one thing that they did turn out twice for Barack Obama, but. Obama has never been able to mobilize those voters for anybody other than himself. So he didn't get them in 2010. He didn't get them in the midterms in 2014. He went on the trail, aggressively on the trail, as did his very popular wife, and said, he said, I will view this as a personal insult if you do not, if you destroy my legacy by somebody who is, you know, uniquely unqualified for this job. And yet the people who supported him in such large numbers did not come out this time. Good point. Well, and another thing is that Barack Obama, for all of his own electoral success, as he leaves office, is leaving behind an absolutely devastated Democratic Party. Not only are they shut out of power in Washington, uh, having not the White House or either House of Congress, but when Barack Obama was inaugurated, there were 34 Democratic governors. There are now 15 Mm. state houses all over the country have flipped. More than 900 Democratic state legislators have been voted out of office on his watch. So um, I think that one of the most interesting stories politically going forward is going to be how the party regroups. You had a brilliant piece about that, and we'll get back to that uh, later. Karen, Josh, um, so as Karen says, President Trump, President-elect Trump, is going to have a Republican-controlled Congress. He's also going to, right off the bat, be able to appoint a Supreme Court justice who will uh, produce a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. We're talking here about someone who likes power, and he's going to have a lot of power. He, he will, and uh, we, we went from a few weeks ago expecting a, per, a potential Democratic wave to seeing a, a, a Republican wipeout in, in this election, and the court is now going to be, a, you're probably going to see a conservative majority 
on the Supreme Court for a generation. And you're going to see I mean, the big question to me, though, is, is the relationship between Speaker Ryan and Trump, because they represent two different wings of the Republican Party. And Paul Ryan, notably, at the very end of this campaign, actually did endorse more enthusiastically a Trump's campaign in Wisconsin than he had for some time. And the big question for the Republicans is, is there going to be a conservative uh, governance? Uh, is, is Trump going to adhere to what, what Paul Ryan believes, the more free market principles that Ryan has that, that have, that's defined Paul Ryan's public service? Or is this more populist uh, side of, of the party that Trump represents on immigration and, and, and on, on entitlements and, and fiscal issues? Does that end up winning the day? And it's going to be fascinating to see these internal divides in the Republican Party show up as President Trump governs. So it's going to be a real it's going to be a real challenge for both the Democrats and the Republicans as they figure out their future. Laura. Absolutely. And the challenges are, 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 are flipped. I mean, we, used, we thought we were going to be covering a Republican Party trying to put itself back together. Instead, we're covering a Democratic Party trying to put itself back together. I think one of the ironies here is that one of the things Hillary Clinton focused on during her campaign is that she tried to do party building. She tried to lend support to down-ballot candidates. She always talked about uh, when she was in a particular state, she would have those candidates on the ballot with her speak before her. That's something that Barack Obama never did. He was his campaign offices had one name on the wall, Barack, which was Obama. Um, her she really ran with the party. Obviously, she is out of the equation now. So now the, the first thing we're going to see is a um, election for the chair of the Democratic National Committee. That's becoming a conversation about what the party should be and, and how it should focus. Um, and then but inside the, the Republicans, though, are going to be the ones that are fascinating to watch as this all unfolds. They're, they're all on the same page at the moment, but I don't know how long that'll last. Well, Karen, as you correctly pointed out, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. And since this election, we have seen protests every night across the country. The Obama coalition still exists. There are a lot of people very angry about this election result. Uh, Donald Trump says he wants to unify the country, but it's hard to imagine a country less unified right now than uh, right. Yeah, and ironically, a lot of those people who were out there protesting are the very same people who were horrified when Donald Trump said that he may not accept the results of this election. <laughs> so um, I, I just think that, you know, everybody's in their, their own echo chamber here. And that there's no unification until until people can step out of those. Josh, uh, so... Donald Trump during the campaign said Barack Obama was the worst president in U.S. history. He said Hillary Clinton was the most corrupt person to ever run for office. Then uh, in his concession speech, he praised Hillary Clinton for her service. And after the meeting with President Obama yesterday, he called him a very good man. It was a surreal scene at the White House yesterday, knowing the anim. First of all, the, the president and Trump had, had never met, at least according to, to Trump's telling of the story. And the, the, the animus between the two throughout the campaign, the fact that the president said that he couldn't be trusted with, with nuclear weapons and, and the animus, the, the birther movement that Trump fueled throughout, uh, even before he ran for president. Uh, it was remarkable. And it, it's a credit to both that they were able to at least tell the country that we have a president-elect, we need to unify as a country. And, and it was hopeful guidance as we see these protests taking place across the country, hopeful guidance from our two our president-elect and, and our current president that we need to come together as a country. Josh Crosshar is political editor with the National Journal. My other guests are Laura Meckler. She's national political correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. And Karen Tumulty, a national political reporter at the Washington Post. We're figuring out what happened this week with this election, what all the ramifications are domestically, politically. I'm Tom Jelton. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
Hello again. I'm Tom Jelton of NPR. I'm sitting in for Diane Rehm, and this is the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup. And my guests here in the studio are Laura Meckler from the Wall Street Journal, Josh Crossauer from the National Journal, and Karen Tumulty from the Washington Post, all three top-notch political reporters. Uh, if you're just joining us, remember this is the one hour of the week when you can actually watch us here in the studio. A uh, live video of our show is streaming at drshow.org. You can also, of course, call us and join our conversation. Our phone number is 1-800-433-8850. We're, we're also taking emails um, a lot of people want us to define some of the terms that we have thrown around, white working class, middle class, college educated white people. They, who do they vote for? White women voting for Trump. Um, please have your guests define the characteristics of the elites. Uh, that's an email from Michael in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Uh, so, Laura, we're trying to dissect the electorate here and figure out uh, which segments of the electorate uh, support who, but th- boy, this is it requires a sociologist, a political <laughs> sociologist to do this, doesn't it? it? It sometimes does, absolutely. So, the white working class vote has been talked about a lot, and what we mean by that when we say that is obviously people who are, are white, uh, that people identify their race uh, themselves when they talk to pollsters or when they talk to exit pollsters. Um, and then working class generally means people who don't have a four-year college degree. So that's that's the that's the way it gets defined in political terms. So um, the reason why whites and non-whites are separated out is that they tend to vote in very different ways. So people who are part of the so-called working class don't have jobs that require college degrees um, and who are white tend to sort of see the world in a different way than than poor or non-college educated black or Latino um, people. Now, these are huge generalizations. We're, we have a big country. We're talking about millions of people get put into each of these buckets. So this is not a precise uh, identification of any one person. There are many exceptions to every single thing that we say here today. But the reason why the, we talk in these terms is just to try to get our hands around it, mm-hmm. you know, with so many people to try to... Um, Try to give them a sense. Is there oh, is there another term there that we needed to define? Elites. I'm not sure how you, elites is probably an eye of the beholder, but I do think that one thing that Trump's campaign made clear was that this idea of the establishment, right. and that is the people who have been running Washington. Uh, there's a lot of anger against those insiders versus outsiders. Uh, enough with the postmortem. Though, let's try and look forward. Uh, Karen, Josh, we're talking about the meeting between Trump and Obama at the White House. And already there's, of course, a lot of speculation about who Trump would bring in, how he's going to handle this transition. What have you seen so far in these uh, 48 hours, really, since the results in terms of how President-elect Trump is looking at this transition? Really not a lot. Um, This was something that the, you know, Donald Trump had said during the campaign that rather than focusing on sort of the broad strokes of his transition, he wanted to focus on winning, probably, you know, a wise decision. We've had certainly conciliatory language, but the speculation, and I don't, is that, you know, will he bring these these sort of... uh, you know these these voices who dominated his campaign, including the what they call the alt right, into the White House with him. You know we have seen so many different models for a transition. Bill Clinton wanted to do big symbolic things during his transition. He wanted to appoint a, a cabinet that looked like America. He wanted to have a big economic conference where everybody could see how smart he was. And in retrospect, they discovered they had not built the White House infrastructure they needed. They had a very chaotic first year. George W. Bush sort of had to do it on the fly because of the the recount. Um, 
by the way, one of the unseen stories at the time was that was when Dick Cheney is sort of setting, is sitting there in McLean at his dining room table figuring out how to set up the government. And Barack Obama wanted, seeing the mistakes Bill Clinton had made, brought in a former Bill Clinton chief of staff, John Podesta, to run his transition, decided to really focus on building the White House. And you really saw a sense of what kind of centralized governance there would be out of the Obama administration. We don't know any of that stuff yet about Donald Trump, but it's a real clue to at least what governance is going to look like in in the early years of his administration. Well, Josh, it seems to me that Donald Trump is going to have to make a couple of major pivots here. I mean, he's been on the attack throughout this campaign, and now he needs to inspire. That's a very different mission for a leader. Um, He's also someone who... Uh, according to what we've read, really likes to run things himself. He's now got the entire U.S. government, the United States of America, to administer. He's going to be much more, he's going to have to be much more of a team player. I mean, this is going to be a challenge for Donald Trump, isn't it? Well, look, it looks like, based on a lot of the names being mentioned for the top cabinet positions, these are people that Jeb Bush could have appointed in, in, in a Bush cabinet. Rudy Giuliani, Steve Hadley, Chris Christie, who was at one point a frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. So I actually would caution that that Trump, well, when you're an inexperienced executive, and we see this in governors that are celebrities, Jesse Ventura, Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. they actually tend to rely on the establishment more. They actually, lobbyists actually have bigger roles. In spite of running against the establishment. In spite of running <laughs> against the establishment. So I would caution that. I mean, that, and I, I would w- watch closely for that chief of staff position. But you don't think it's going to be Steve Steve Bannon well, from Breitbart? If it is Steve Bannon, and then well, I take take a look at what I said, said said back. But if Reince Priebus is, is chief of staff, and, and he is sort of the ultimate establishment player, having headed the RNC for, for the last uh, two, two elections, uh, you know, it's a sign that the establishment is actually winning out despite the political rhetoric in the campaign. And by the way, it's important to note that the single most important job of the White House chief of staff is determining who and what information gets to the president. Well, Laura, one of the interesting things that I read about in this meeting yesterday between Donald Trump and uh, Barack Obama is that they that's exactly what they talked about. They didn't talk about big issues. They talked about sort of the logistics of running the White House, apparently. And, and that really makes sense. What are they going to talk about about big issues? Are they going to talk about whether he's going to build a wall or tear down a, uh, the Affordable Care Act? I mean, I don't think that they would have much common ground on any of the of the substantive issues of the presidency. But Running the presidency, that's a different story. And I think that it's notable. um, You know, President Obama's taken a very, very welcoming, positive attitude towards this transition. I think that he really appreciated the fact that President George W. Bush took that approach when he was on his way in. Obviously, he was not um, President Bush's choice of a candidate either. Now, we didn't have the kind of vitriol that we have had um, in this campaign in that one. But still, he appreciated the fact that he um, Bush facilitated a smooth transition, and he seems um, determined to do the same this time. So, yes, I think talking about how the White House functions is a natural point of conversation for them. And that meeting, we should know, you know, which it's kind of a, a ritual of Washington that you have this meeting, and it could have been very pro forma. But they did talk for, I think it was an hour and a half, which right. is a lot longer than it was scheduled for. And, you know, clearly they had something to say. So uh, we saw at various points during this campaign, Karen, sort of uh, changes in tone in the part of Donald Trump where he would go from being very bombastic to being sort of calm. Um, So far since his election, we've mostly seen the sort of down to earth. I'm not sure humble is the right word, but. (laughs) Well, sort of. I mean, uh, 
just we we saw it's publicly he's in his public statements in front of microphones he's been very conciliatory but we saw just last night two a huge change of tone in that he first tweeted about the protesters now professional protesters incited by the media are protesting very unfair exclamation point and then this morning he tweeted love the fact that uh, the small groups of protesters last night have passion for our great country we will all come together and be proud you wonder at this point you know are they are they taking his his smartphone away from him and sending out which of these is going to be the Donald Trump that we see in the Oval Office or are they going to take away his Twitter account. Josh, this is why the chief of staff position is the most consequential appointment he's going to make. And I think that will tell you a lot about the, how, how he intends to govern, whether it'll be more like the tone of the campaign or more like the tone of the last couple of days. But uh, I mean, it, that, that's the big question. And, and Pence is also a very major player in this administration. He may be the most influential vice president in, in, in modern history, he, even compared to Dick Cheney, who was fairly uh, influential in his own right. And uh, the, another big question is, how much does Trump delegate? Is he going to be you know, doing the businessman CEO model where he allows his cabinet, gives a lot of power to, to his vice president? Or is he going to be a micromanager like we saw at moments in the campaign where he wants to tweet everything, he wants to, to be in charge, and he doesn't like underlings overruling or, or criticizing what he has to say? Uh, Laura, let's talk a little bit about what, we, uh, what kind of policies uh, we're likely to see uh, enacted here in the first months of the Trump presidency. Um, very interesting chart. I think charts in both the Washington Post and New York Times this morning sort of outlining all the big areas where Trump made very bold promises, some of which accord with Republican orthodoxy, many of which don't accord with Republican orthodoxy. Now, if, as Josh says, he brings in a bunch of Republican establishment insiders, uh, what does that tell you about how ambitiously he's going to move on infrastructure spending, uh, renegotiating trade deals, some of these things that actually defy Republican orthodoxy. Well, actually, infrastructure spending, I think, is something that for a long time was something Republicans supported. Now, in recent years, they haven't been willing to pass that under Obama, but I don't think that that's something that flies in the face of their of their belief system. Now, how you pay for it is another, another story. Um, I don't know whether in today's Washington, given the campaign that he just ran, paying for things matters anymore. Um, but that that is that is a question on the table. I don't think infrastructure challenges that way. But and I do think that could be an early uh, early move we see. Um, now on other matters, it's a different story. So trade deals, for instance, I think that he was you know absolutely anti-trade. In fact, you could argue that that was the most important thing that um, important issue in terms of driving his electorate behind him. That is going to take a little longer to play out, I think. You know, renegotiating trade deals is not something that happens with a blink of an eye. I think we can safely say that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is is dead for the foreseeable future. Maybe maybe who knows if it will ever be revived. Um, but I don't think we're going to see that happen, certainly under President um, Trump or in the lame duck session coming up. Um, immigration is something that divides the party. You know, there are there are Republicans still who believe that both believe that they need to grapple with this issue in a positive way and also think it's important for their long term political health. Donald Trump just offered some evidence on the other side of that equation. Um, a lot of what Trump can uh, immigration um, policy he can do on his own, though, and that has to do with how many people you deport. Now, he may not be able to build a wall by himself. He needs appropriations for that. But he can 
um, go about changing the way for immigration laws are enforced. He, right now, if you're an illegal immigrant living in this country and you're not a criminal or a recent border crossing crosser, you're, you're pretty safe if you've been here for a while. That might change. Laura Meckler is national political correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. I'm Tom Jelton. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. And remember, uh, you can watch this hour of The Diane Reem Show. We're live video streaming at drshow.org. And again, our phone number is 1-800-433-8850. There's still a couple of lines open, and we're going to get to those calls in a minute. Uh, Karen, I want to go back to the point you made early on, which is about how Democrats are going to figure out their future going forward. The, the, they've been decimated at every level of government down to state legislators. They don't have much of a bench. They're going to have to come up with some strong candidates. And there's also, as you suggested, real division within the Democratic Party about what lessons to take from this, to whether to move to the, to the left uh, and to embrace populism, which is the force that apparently brought Donald Trump to power, or to maybe move back to, to the center and try to recapture some of the white evangelicals who have deserted the party, maybe bring in some of the moderate Republicans who are very uncomfortable with the Trump presidency. I mean, those are two very different strategies going forward. That's right. And I think we're going to see it first played out in the race for who's going to be the new party chairman. Um, we've already seen Howard Dean um, is who did it before, who was known for a 50-state strategy, has put his hat out there. And um, Keith Ellison, uh, the congressman, uh, Muslim has has also um, Elizabeth Warren gave a very interesting speech mm. yesterday in front of the AFL-CIO where she said that what the party really needs to come to grips with was that as hard as they worked to portray Donald Trump as unacceptable and despite the fact that you know huge numbers of Americans considered him you know unqualified for the office they nonetheless voted for him because he d- he did represent a kind of change and he did represent a kind of populism. I think that that is an argument you're going to hear a lot coming from the party's populist left. The argument on the other side from the sort of centrist wing, which is not very vigorous these days, is that how are you going to defeat right-wing populism with left-wing populism? Yeah. And Josh, um I'm I'm wondering here about the changing of the guard. Have we heard and seen the last of Hillary and Bill Clinton? Are they likely now to sort of recede? Uh, Will they continue to play a role going forward? Or, you know, will Barack Obama, as the former president, sort of take a more political role? Or will he sort of move into the background and do things that ex-presidents like to do? Well, the bigger question is what does... When, when President Obama becomes former President Obama, what yeah. does he do? Yeah. The Clintons are, are done with. I mean, there's already a lot of recriminations behind the scenes about the, the campaign, about how Hillary Clinton was the, abs- the absolute worst candidate given the anti-establishment times we live in. I also just wanted to note that the fact that we're talking about Howard Dean as the more moderate, more conservative Democrat in the DNC race shows how far left the Democratic Party has drifted. And I, 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 I have to side with the centrists who, um, you know, there, there's – 
the Democratic Party during the Obama presidency has been moving to the left, thinking they could mobilize the Obama coalition to victory, despite the fact that they were alienating increasing numbers of swing voters, moderate voters, despite the belief that mobilization was more important than persuasion. And now they're finding themselves, after losing the House, losing the Senate, and now losing the presidency, in the wilderness with not a lot of good options. Trump Trump is going to capture that populism, and if he governs somewhat effectively, it's going to hard to be more populist than Donald Trump. So the most logical path back is to try to pick off some of these pro-business moderate Republicans and try to get some of the old DLC pragmatic centrists back in the party. But it's not easy to find the candidates that can represent that point of view. But as Laura, Laura, as we said earlier, Republicans also have some big decisions to make going forward. I mean, the demographics still aren't with them, are they? Right. They they aren't. They still do have a problem, absolutely. And if those voters who stayed home decide that they want to turn out, then this would have been a very different election. As as you said, or as Karen said earlier, you know, neither one of them even reached the Mitt Romney total from 2012. So... I, I do think that Republicans have a challenge, but, you know, right now they're they're looking pretty good. They're running the House, the Senate, and the White House, and I think that um, – and they're going to preserve their majority, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So I, I think the challenge for them is – is to figure out how are they going to govern? You know, what what are they going to put forward? What um, Where are they going to serve as a check on Trump? And where are they going to get behind him? And, I, you know, we're going to see those questions play out. So, for instance, I think the tax policy is a fascinating question. You know, Trump had a tax proposal, a huge tax cut, with and disproportionately benefits the wealthy because they pay disproportionately more taxes. Well, is that is that a populist move to cut taxes on the rich? I mean, and are they going to all go behind that? We'll see. And he has also promised to protect Social Security and the safety net, which is not something that's going to be easy to balance with his promise to reduce the deficit, it's fair to say. Okay, uh, we're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, we'll go to your phone calls. I'm with Laura Meckler, Josh Crosshauer, and Karen Tumulty. I'm Tom Jelton. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Tom Jelton. I'm sitting in for Diane Rehm, and this is the first hour of the Friday News Roundup. This is the hour where we discuss domestic news, and of course the big domestic news this week is the election of Donald Trump. And with me to help sort it all out are Laura Meckler, a national political correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, Josh Crosshauer, and Karen Tumulty in similar roles at National Journal and the Washington Post. And we're getting some uh, thoughtful and interesting emails uh, and... and uh, comments on Twitter. Uh, Linda in Manistee, Michigan, writes, I'm a white college-educated Clinton voter from Michigan. Democrats got taken to the woodshed by Republicans. I fear that in the post-mortem, Democratic Party leaders will focus on the Comey letter for this law. She's referring to the letter from FBI Director James Comey, who pointed out that the that there was a kind of a reopening of the email investigation of Hillary Clinton. She says uh, she's worried that uh, Democrats are going to focus too much on that letter and blame it for the loss when we had a fundamentally flawed candidate who was anointed by the party before the primary process began and was unable to energize former Obama voters to even vote in the general election. I'm wondering if she might have been a 
Sanders supporter. It kind of sounds like it from that letter. Um, here's an email from Doug, uh, who warns us not to denigrate the protesters. The protests are a healthy reminder to Trump and Congress that more than half of the country dislikes Trump's character and policies. Those, vo- those voices need to remain big and loud during Trump's first 100 days. Don't expect us to roll over. Uh, you know, an interesting point, Karen. I mean, f- really astonishing exit poll results showing that a strong majority of people didn't think Donald Trump was qualified to be a president, to be fit as president. They prefer, they, according to those data, they actually thought Hillary Clinton was much more qualified, and yet they voted for Donald Trump. But the fact remains that there are a lot of Americans that aren't comfortable with Donald Trump as a person. And I, I think the recent history of protests like this is that unless you come forward with an actual agenda, as opposed to just a, a you know, a, a primal scream, you don't get very far. And a lot of that energy would probably be better spent figuring out and motivating people to get to the polls. But, you know, but I'll just offer another thought there, which is I think, you know, just whatever, two, three days after the election, there are a lot of people who feel that they need a primal scream. And they're, it's, it's, you know, they're not ready yet to figure out a plan. But long term, obviously, that's right. That's what they're going to have to figure out how to mobilize this. But there are just, I think, a lot of people, you know, we're, we're talking, we're just days away from when the Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were talking about how this man is a threat to the republic. So, right. you know, it's it's a pretty hard pivot to go from hearing people say that to let's all let's all unify. Well, and and we're at the other way, it probably we'd be seeing the same thing in the streets, but I think it speaks to a basic um uh, almost unhealthiness in our society, in our media culture, that everybody gets to live in their own echo chamber. But, Josh, what I'm wondering is, given these figures of how many Americans weren't entirely comfortable with Donald Trump, what does that mean about the honeymoon that he is going to get? I mean, is there going to be impatience on the part of his supporters? Well, I think the big, big tell is going to be not the Democratic Party, but how well Paul Ryan and some of these uh-huh. anti-Trump Republicans can, can, can work with the Trump administration. And I, and I also wanted to comment that there's a lot of talk about how, you know, people don't know who these Trump voters are. But one of the more fascinating things when you look at the exit poll data is how well, how surprisingly well Trump did with college-educated white voters. He won yep. college-educated white voters by four points. He won white women. And more African-Americans and Hispanics actually voted for Trump than Mitt Romney. So for all this talk that we there's, there's this miss, you know, we don't know any Trump voters, you don't know where these people are coming from. Trump outperformed Rom- Romney among minorities. And he also did respectably, didn't do nearly as well as Romney did with college educated whites. But he did a whole lot better than the, the public polls suggested, which means that there were a lot of people that didn't want to say they were supporting Donald Trump, and, but ultimately cast a vote. And for the him. most astonishing thing I think I saw in the exit polls, uh, in assuming they're correct, is that he that Donald Trump got at two percent percentage points more of the Hispanic vote than mm-hmm. Mitt Romney yeah. did. Right. Let's go. Let's bring some of our listeners in on our conversation now. First of all, to Anna in calling from Silver Spring. Hello, Anna. This is the Diane Reem Show. Hi. Um, so my my question is the following. I mean, I've been getting I've been seeing on social media um, a stream about a petition that people are signing. Um, to for the, for the delegates to vote against their respective votes in their in their states. To me, that of course doesn't hold you water. Mean in the electoral college. Equivalent, yeah, and, and it's equivalent to the protests that you see in the states. I mean, as we, as you were talking, it doesn't hold water to just like emit a primal primal scream and want to undo 
um, the elections as they went. But my question is why is is regarding the actual system. How anachronistic is it that um, in this uh, day and age where we have social media, you know, how how does that even um, play a part? Isn't isn't it important maybe to revise that because then it somehow gives um, Trump a, um, a populist you know candidate that sort of manipulated uh, segments of society like well, white workers from the Rust Belt, for instance, and then got his victory through that because after all. She did win the popular vote. So that's my question regarding the system. And, and your precise concern is that social media, with social media, people people are more informed about the choices, and maybe we should trust the popular vote more than we have in over these last 200 years? Because to my understanding, the reason why the, um, um, the electoral college system was devised was to give voice you know, and to, um, I don't, that's my, maybe that's my ignorance, but my understanding, that is why, I mean, it's just, there's a question, uh, it raises in my mind the question of how important is it to maintain that system as opposed to right now in this day and age, how does, how, does, how anachronistic is it? How does, how, how important is it to, to maintain that system? And because my question is, doesn't it, doesn't it provide force, um, to a candidate like him with demagogic yep. with a demagogic speech that like reaches to certain strategic areas like the Rust Belt, like okay. to, you know. To get okay, Anna, we got we got your point. Let's let's try and figure it out. Uh, we've certainly heard this complaint about the electoral college before. This is now the second election in in the last twenty years that where we had a different result in the popular vote in the electoral college. Laura, true. Um, However, I think that we're, there, there's something deeper underneath what she was saying, which is basically she's saying that, hey, large numbers of people, and I think it's fair to say the people she knows, don't want this. So how can we allow it to happen? He's manipulated the system. Well, I mean, the system is what it is. It's a state-based system. It goes back to the founding of this country when states had a lot of authority um, to to run this country, that we we're, there was a, a, a push and pull between the federal power and state power. And this is one of the things that um, came out of that. I don't know uh, the details of the history behind the Electoral College, but I believe that was the, that was, that's the heart of it. And... Uh, Essentially, that's the system that we have here, and that's how both candidates ran their campaigns. Both candidates knew where the votes were going, which states were going to decide it. And truthfully, it wasn't that close when it came to the Electoral College. I mean, she didn't lose this by just one state. You know, she she lost several states that she needed. She lost several different types of states that she needed. I think that at, at base, the reason why she lost this was less about him manipulating people, which I think is a little bit condescending to those people. They 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 had they made a choice. Now they might not be a choice that anybody that you agree with or that lots of other people agree with, but they made their own choice and their vote is equal to yours. So I think the bigger problem was that you had a candidate, Hillary Clinton, who was not at all um, a match for the moment. You know, she did not have a message about change. She did not have a message that was at all looking for um, to tap the the anger that was coursing mm-hmm. through the electorate. Karen well, I also think, and it's important to remember that, that, you know, the system stayed in place despite the fact that Al Gore won the popular vote by a bigger margin and lost the electoral co- college by a smaller margin than we've seen this year. I totally understand and, and agree with the arguments that the Electoral College is anachronistic. But what you would lose by that if you were to just make it the popular vote is essentially big money 
would the candidates would camp out in New York and California. Nobody else would ever see them. And these gigantic media markets would just suck up the billions by the billions. Well, uh, rural voters were very big in this election, and rural voters would really not count for much. <laughs> no, they, they would – the flyover would, in fact, be flyover. Right. <laughs> Josh. Yeah, I absolutely agree with what Karen said that it actually the electoral college actually constrains populism mm-hmm. because if you're just speaking to the base in Texas and California, that's the result of what would happen if we had a national popular vote. Contest. Let's go now to Brian, who's on the line from Michigan. Hello, Brian. You have called the Diane Reem show. Yeah, um, being in Michigan, I can tell you the problem. And from the interviews I've been hearing, I don't think they're still getting it. Um, one thing Trump sold was one the corruption. Uh, you know, Hillary, uh, too, was all the money she's taking from big business, which, is, you know, you associate with Republicans. But mostly everything you hear is uh, the t- the uh, free trade agreement. They feel betrayed. Um, you know, Obama was supposed to relook at NAFTA. He never did. Um, you know, when the when NAFTA first came out, even though Clinton signed it, it was the you know, majority of the Democrats opposed it. And the Republicans supported it overall. And that's been shifting now. They're not to the point of Trump, but. You know, they feel betrayed by that. And lastly, um, they haven't been selling the facts. Bernie Sanders talks about, you know, the 1%. There's this wonderful chart on uh, inequality.org that shows where incomes would be if we had the same inequality of 1979. And every group would have another three, four, ten thousand $10,000. The only group that would be behind if we had the same inequality is the 1%, and they'd be making $824,000 less a year. Nobody's selling that. Nobody's standing up and saying, hey, this is what the oligarchs are doing to you. And Donald's part of the oligarchs. Do you really think he's going to go against his own self-interest? I don't hear any of that. But you would say, but you would say, Brian, that uh, would you say that Donald Trump spoke to those concerns more than Hillary Clinton did, despite him being a multi-billionaire? Oh, yeah, definitely. And Ford moving to... um, uh, their new their new things to Mexico. I mean, he sold that. You know, they Democrats saved the auto industry, but what have you done for me lately? And they're just not getting okay. it. They're not selling it. They're not challenging. And you're right about the Republicans are going to be split between the you know the neocon interventionists. They're going to fight them, but that one percent oligarch that wants that free trade, yeah. how are they going to fight back? Okay, Laura. I, I just think there's an irony here. Yes, on trade, he was much more in touch with that. But if you look at the other economic policies, Clinton wanted to increase taxes on the rich. Trump wanted to cut them. Clinton wants to increase minimum the minimum wage. wage. Trump does not want to increase the minimum wage. So, in fact, you know, if you dig into the issues, in fact, she was addressing these things, but she just wasn't the, the person. I don't think she didn't have the message that allowed that to get through. I'm Tom Jelton. That's Laura Meckler. You're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. Josh, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, this is an election, when you look at the results, that's divided a lot more on, on, on class and education level than ideology. And when you look at some of these states that swung from the Democratic column to the Republican column, it's remarkable to see the Philadelphia suburbs where Republicans once ruled the roost actually voted more, a lot more for Hillary Clinton. And yet Scranton, Erie, Johnstown. Uh, became Republican strongholds in Ohio, which overwhelmingly supported Trump by almost double digits in this election. It was the strong, union, union rather strongholds in Youngstown and along the eastern strip of Ohio that overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump, even as the the growing suburbs of Columbus. Cleveland, Cincinnati, trended towards Hillary Clinton. So this is an ideology. We didn't talk a lot about issues in this campaign, but we did talk a lot about class. 
Karen, uh, before we uh, wrap up this hour, I want to talk about some of the other uh, races that uh, we saw on Tuesday. There were uh, a number of groundbreaking elections. We saw the first Latina senator elected in Nevada to replace Harry Reid, the first LGBT governor. I mean, we shouldn't disregard those developments. Yeah, that was uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada and uh, Governor Kate Brown in Oregon. She has actually been the governor uh, since February of 2015, but she, she took the job. She had been the secretary of state because the governor had to resign in the middle of a, a scandal. So this was the first time the state sort of was able to affirmatively elect her. Uh, I, I do think that, that we are, you know, the, the, the steps keep getting made. And so that as I, I know a lot of women are very despairing that, you know, if, if not Hillary Clinton, what, what woman could get elected? Uh, the fact is that a lot of barriers are coming around all around us. And, Laura, also uh, liberal um, signs of creeping liberalism with the number of uh, states voting to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. Absolutely, as well as increase the minimum wage, as we were just talking about. So, I mean, there, there is, I, I do this, as Josh said, this was not an election, a presidential election about issues. When you look at the issues, still the liberal point of view does prevail on a lot of things, even on immigration. Seventy percent of the people in exit polls said that they supported uh, a pa- um, legalization for people here illegally. So, go figure. We have time for one more call. Gary is on the phone from Los Angeles. Hello, Gary. You're on the Diane Reem Show. Hi. I'm... Uh trying to overcome my extreme depression after the outcome of this election, but I'm absolutely astounded. I'm not someone who is against the media. I'm not someone I I respect the vast majority of journalists and their insight and education, but I'm just astounded that this issue of the Supreme Court nominee has not been brought up. I will not accept the legitimacy of the outcome of this election because of the voter suppression that took place that I have not heard enough talk about. The margin was so close Uh, In 2000, we had the intervention of the Supreme Court to throw the election to the Republicans. This year, we had the the intervention of the FBI. And furthermore, here, my president, Barack Obama, had an opportunity to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. It's been stolen from him and given to the Republicans. This is completely unacceptable. I advocate that we all continue to protest. Well, Josh, uh, the charge that this election was rigged came mostly from Donald Trump uh, before the election, and now we're hearing it from the other side. Yeah, hypocrisy is no, no, knows no bounds in politics. I, I do want to talk about the court because I think one of the big blunders by the president was nominating an older white guy, a centrist, instead of someone who could excite the Democratic base. And what we've learned during the Obama presidency is that it – Identity politics has come to define the Democratic Party. And if you're not, uh, you know, spend on white, if you're not young, if you're not part of the new Obama coalition, it's hard to get the base excited about you, even if you agree on a lot of the issues. And Garland did not excite the Democratic base. No one even talked about Garland on the uh, on all these Senate and House races, which was once considered to be a big battleground for, for, for Democrats. And Republicans were excited at the possibility of having a conservative Supreme Court. And they did mobilize on behalf of Donald Trump, even if they disagreed with him on a lot of issues. Well, one of the other points that Gary brought up was he was very critical of the news media for not uh, being aggressive enough about this. And uh, I think just in these closing seconds, we need to point out that this is going to be a real question uh, going forward. What position are news organizations going to take under a Trump presidency? Donald Trump is someone who has said, threatened to sue news organizations that write stories that he considers untrue. It's going to be a real challenge. I think we'd all agree for the news media 
media to figure out how to cover this president. I'd like to thank my panelists, Laura Meckler from the Wall Street Journal, Josh Crossauer from uh, the National Journal, and Karen Tumulty, national political reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you all for coming in. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And thanks to all the listeners. Sorry to those who didn't get a chance to weigh in. We have a lot of thoughts from our listeners on this election. I'm Tom Jelton. This is The Diane Reem Show. Thanks for listening. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis.